So last Sunday, we looked at Isaiah chapter 7, and going into the Advent season, Christmas season, and looked at the backstory behind what is going on with King Ahaz. In fact, part of the backstory is also given for us, given to us in 2 Kings chapter 16. And it's about the king Ahaz, who was not a godly king. And um, he had different nations that were rising up against him. This is in the 8th century B.C. Somewhere in the mid, mid toward the early 700s, right, B.C. And, and so um, he has the king of Syria, who is a guy named Rezin, and the king of Israel, remember the northern kingdom? Remember I went quite a bit about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom? The northern kingdom was Israel the southern, or Ephraim, or also known as Samaria. I don't know if I threw that one in there, but the, the, it had those three different names. Ten tribes, and uh, they were, um, they split from the nation, the house of David, I should say after Solomon's son took over as king. So you have Judah and Benjamin that are part of the southern kingdom, also known as Judah. And you have Israel, the ten tribes, in the northern kingdom, also known as Ephraim and uh, Samaria, and or Samaria. And as I mentioned on Sunday, the northern kingdom went full-blown into idolatry. And so because of their idolatry, they're going to be eventually overran by the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire is raising its head. Uh, as, uh, uh, Tiglath-Pileser uh, was the, the, the initial king that started the, the uh, imperial efforts of the Assyrian Empire. And um, eventually Israel falls. 722 B.C., and they are dispersed. Not only are they dispersed, but people from other parts of the Assyrian Empire are brought into the land of Israel, northern kingdom. And so they, um, they do that to basically to try to destroy their national identity. So This is before the fall of Israel, obviously. But the king of Assyria is basically looking to expand his empire. And so the Syrians, also known as the Arameans, the Syrians, which were from, uh, their capital is in Damascus. Um, They have an alliance with the northern kingdom. Now, the Syrians are not God's people that the Assyrians are not God's people. But neither really, well, Israel was, they were God's chosen people, but they were apostate. Um, so they, the, those two kings have an alliance. They're, they're uh, going to try to defend themselves against the Assyrian 
Empire coming in and taking over. And actually, the Assyrians take over Syria first. Later, they will take over the northern kingdom, Israel. And so they're looking to form an alliance with Judah. Judah refuses, so they're going to displace um, Ahaz, who is an ungodly king. And Second Kings 16 mentions how ungodly he was, including he had his sons pass through the fire. He basically burned them as an offering. Um, and, um, but nonetheless, he will not jo- join in on the alliance. And so they mount an attack against Judah, the Syrians and the, the nation of Israel. They're, they start an attack against Judah. So far, is everybody with me? All right. So he's, he's fearful. And Isaiah is, the prophet, is told to go out and to meet him and to bring his son, Shir Jeshem, Uh, with him and to speak to Ahaz and tell him in verse 4 to take heed and be quiet, do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, which is um, King Pekah of the northern kingdom. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up to Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in the wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tebel. And thus says the Lord, It will not stand, nor shall it come to pass. The head of Damascus, excuse me, the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken. So this puts this somewhere in the early, which would be the early 8th century B.C., which would be somewhere around um, 7, I said on Sunday it was probably more like 735, but it's actually earlier than that. It's probably more like 760 to 780. Um, And so that they will not be a people, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. So there you have it, and that's Yes, I just read verse 9, chapter 7. Okay, if you do not believe, surely you will not be established. Okay, so the Lord speaks to Ahaz again. Presume that it is through the prophet Isaiah, verse 10. And he says, ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord God, either the depth, in the depth or the height above, right? In other words, the lowest of Sheol, all the way to the highest of the heavens. Ask for any kind of sign you would like. So Ahaz, as I brought up on Sunday, he gets religious. And he says, and I, uh, um, he says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord, right? He's coming out of Deuteronomy 6, uh, Deuteronomy 16, actually. And, but he's misapplying the scripture because when God says, go ahead and do something, that means he should be obedient and go ahead and do something. So, so God gives a sign, all right? And in verse 14, it says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I touched on this somewhat on Sunday. 
because I said this is a prophetic sign that's given to us in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 23. And um, so it says in verse 22 of Matthew 1, so all this was done and it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So uh, that was when the angel appeared to Joseph. Why or how in the world would anybody know way back in Isaiah's day that that would be a messianic prophecy? Would they know? He might have. He very well might have. But if you read it in the text, we're just left hanging. Now, again, we look at this from the advantage of we've already read Matthew, right? But why in the world would he say, if this is about Jesus, all right, why in the world would he continue this prophecy? I, didn't, I stopped at verse 14 on Sunday on purpose. Curds and honey he shall eat, and he will know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. What is the land that Ahaz dreads? Syria and Israel. So, and it says the Lord will bring the king of Israel Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah because there was a civil war. So, but why would it say in verse 15 that curds and honey shall he eat that he may know to refuse evil and choose the good if this is talking about the Messiah? Or who is this talking about? Could be John the Baptist, but what I want to bring out here, and that part of why I asked this question, is this is part of why I'm, I, I, have a real, I strongly believe that a lot of Old Testament prophecies have near and far fulfillments. And that this is an illustration of a near and far fulfillment. Because if you continue to read verse 16 and then into 17, it sounds like a contemporary prophecy, does it not? For before the child shall know to refuse evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Before that even happens. So that sounds like a prophecy that's something that's going to be fulfilled um, rather quickly. And then it says, The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you in your days. Anyway, it, it goes on to talk about how the king of Assyria will basically come and almost smother them and yet be forced to retreat. 
I'm not going to take the time and, and look at that in the rest of verse, or chapter 7. So, looking at this here, without looking at Matthew, I don't see any indication that would tell me other than, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which is important. But perhaps that name shall be called Emmanuel might just be an illustration type of a sign that is given prophetically. So let's continue. Chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Mahershala Hazbaz. I love that. That's a name, by the way. It's the longest personal name in the Bible. Mahershala Hazbaz. It means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Or it could, in its very basic description, it could mean rapid, complete victory or speed, spoil, hurry, and pray. Kind of like when you were out hunting. Speed, spoil, hurry, pray. Right? And so Isaiah had to take a big sign. I don't know how he did it. Take a large scroll, right? A big, big piece of, I don't know. I, I envision a piece of cardboard, but obviously they didn't have cardboard then. And he takes a Sharpie, right? Okay. And he writes simply, Maher Shaler Hasbaz, which means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. What is going on here? is that this begins to be a prophetic illustration of the king of Assyria who's going to be coming. He's going to be coming in a hurry. He's going to take the spoil. He's going to take the prey. And guess what, Judah? You're the object of that prey. So as we go on, God is speaking, and I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jera, excuse me, Jereb, Jeber, I can't pronounce that, uh, Jeberachiah, there it is. Then I went. Okay, who is the, when he says, then I went, who's speaking here? Isaiah. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Hazbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria. Okay, Damascus, Syria, spoil of Samaria, Israel, will be taken away before the king of Assyria. Let's back into verse 7. I mean, I'm sorry, chapter 7 again, verse 16. 
For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by her kings. Let's go back to chapter 8 and look at verse 4 again. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father, my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. You have basically a prophecy of the downfall of both Syria and Israel that's given to us in chapter 7, verse 16, and chapter 8, verse 4. And it is a sign that God gave. Remember I said on Sunday, it is a sign that God gave to whom? To the house of Israel. So, essentially, remember what I said also on this, where it said, go back to chapter 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Remember that word virgin that we talked about on Sunday? It's the Hebrew word Alma, which essentially means a young woman of marriageable age. That in the Hebrew culture, a young woman of marriageable age would imply two things. One, she's single. Two, in Hebrew culture, she better be a virgin. So you have this weird prophecy that's given here that this young woman of marriageable age, who should have been a virgin, but she might not have been, should have been single, but might not have been even, Because in the next chapter where it says, I went to the prophetess and she conceived. So what happened? They they slept together. And he's probably referring to his wife. Although she's probably the one who bore her first his first son to him that we read about in chapter seven. But she has a son. And the son, the name of the son, becomes a sign. All of this wrapped around what? The concept of God with us. Which should make you a bit uncomfortable. But all of this this prophecy is wrapped around the sign of God with us. And God is going to take out the enemies of the house of David even though the current king, Ahaz, the current king of the house of David, 2 Kings chapter 16, but also 2 Chronicles chapter 28, he is not a good king. He is not a godly king. And the Lord also, verse 5, chapter 8, the Lord also spoke to me again, saying, inasmuch as these people refuse the water of Siloah, that flows softly and rejoice in resin and in Ramaliah's son. Who's Ramaliah's son? Pekah, the king of Israel. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them 
the waters of the river. Notice that river is capitalized. It's a reference to the Euphrates. The waters of the river, strong and mighty, and the king of Assyria in all his glory, and he will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks, and he will pass through Judah, and he will overflow and pass over and will reach up to the neck and stretching out his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. O God with us. He's using the flood waters of the Euphrates rivers that overflows its banks in the springtime when the snow melts. He's using the flood waters as an illustration of the Assyrian army coming in as a flood. This, this terminology is also used later in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. But it's this massive influx of the armies invading Judah coming up to the neck. Now, you're a diver. If you're in a flood and the floodwaters are up to a neck, but you're not getting swept away, can you survive? Pretty much, because you're able to breathe. That's part of the illustration here. Remember, this is, it, he's painting pictures for us with prophetic illustrations. He's not talking about a river overflowing. He's talking about an army overflowing the land of Judah. Which we'll read about, we won't read about, but it's recorded in, I think it's 36, 37, 38, and 39 of Isaiah. In those chapters. And go over all his banks. And he, okay, Pastor, would you, okay, and we'll fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. The sign that was given to the house of David. What's so important to the house of, what's so important about the house of David? A lot of things, but one in particular that I'm thinking of. Any, can you, what? The lineage. The lineage, which was the reason for the covenant, Second Samuel 7. And so there's this promise given to the house of David. Ezekiel talks about David sitting on the throne. I don't think he's talking about David. I think he's talking about Jesus. Uh, and it's a future uh, prophetic uh, utterance of David sitting on the throne. Uh, throne. Um, and so looking at all of this you have a king who has no faith who is not mentioned here it is mentioned in 2 Kings I believe 16 where he's going to make an alliance with the Assyrians and he takes some of the vessels out of the temple and he gives them, you know, the gold and silver vessels and he gives them to the king of Assyria and he basically asks the king of Assyria to come in and take out the northern kingdom, Israel, and the Syrians. And Assyria does that but then they turn the Assyrians, excuse me, then they turn Judah into a vassal state. And they end up paying tribute. 
uh, until they decide not to pay tribute. And then the Assyrians come in and they march and they basically almost take the entire country except for Judah. Excuse me, except for um, Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah. Okay. So... It's my thought that Maher Hazbaz is the near fulfillment of the prophecy given in Isaiah chapter 7, 14. They fit pretty closely together when you read not only 14, but verse 15 and 16 of chapter 7. That part of that prophecy really is referring to something that will happen within the lifetime of those contemporaries, including Ahaz, who heard it the first time. They may or may not have known that that was a messianic prophecy. We don't know. We do know it's a messianic prophecy. Why? Because the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to record the conversation between Joseph um, and the angel who, when Joseph wanted to put Mary away uh, privately, uh, and the angel appeared to him and said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because that which is conceived to her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. And so all of this was done for behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So you have two different aspects of this name Emmanuel because the names themselves are signs. Um, I didn't write it down. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Because I'll probably refer to it a little bit on Sunday. Because Isaiah proclaims, I didn't write it down, I'm having trouble finding it, but Isaiah proclaims, here I am in the Lord and the children that you've given me. Recognizing his prophetic ministry and the names that he was told to give both of his sons as further illustrations of a prophetic um, pronouncement of what God was going to do. I think that's exactly what's going on because what you may or may not know in till about verse chapter 39 in the book of Isaiah there's a lot of history, but there's also a lot of prophecy. And it's a prophecy of God raising up the enemies of Judah. He's raising them up to uh, chastise the nation of Judah. And so God is prophesying that Judah is going to fall under chastisement. 
and then he will note that they went a bridge too far and they're chastising. And then he chastises them for chastising Judah. And it is, it's a pattern. And to me, it's, it's a pattern in, in some of the other prophetic books as well, but Isaiah primarily um, is that, that, and Peter talks about this because judgment begins at the house of God. And see, this is one of the reasons why I don't buy into a pre-trib rapture, is that, that, that God deals with his people before he, he deals with anybody else. And he doesn't deal with them by taking them out of the way. Um, at least that's what we see in the Old Testament. And so I think there, there's, that's part of it. One of the things that just fascinates me, and I, I don't like this, but it's very, um, the book of Habakkuk. In chapter 1, the prophet asked a question, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry out to you violence and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife, contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. It's a time of serious injustice that's going on. The wicked surround the righteous. Here's God's response. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though I, it were told you. Indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, which is Babylon. A bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards they are, and more fierce than evening wolves. They, their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. They, their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings. The princes are scorned by them. They derive every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes, and he transgresses, and he commits offense, and ascribes his power to his God. That's exactly what is said in response. And so this is, this is because... This is what you really we see in the book of Isaiah. This is, what really, this is really one of the first prophecies in the book of Isaiah that um, Judah is going to be overran. Again, with the exception of Jerusalem. And, and God's deliverance, uh, I think it's 138,000 or so, or 38,000. I think it was 38,000 of their soldiers were killed in one night um, as they laid siege on Jerusalem for a period of time. So, no, yes, of course. <laughs> Sorry. This prophecy will still be 
David. Specifically for the tribe of Judah, but yes, we could call them Israelites. The house of David was overseen or ruled by, excuse me, back up. The house of David ruled the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, which consisted of Judah and Benjamin. And this prophecy that we looked at in chapter 8 is really more reflective of what's going to happen to Judah, not what's going to happen to Syria and the northern kingdom which is known as Israel, although they are both mentioned in verse 6. I might have. I might have done that on accident. In this context, it is. Okay, the house of David refers to the kingly line. Okay? And they did oversee Israel before the Civil War. Before they split. And then from after the split, the ten tribes, the northern kingdom, split from the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, which becomes Judah. And I, I probably made a mistake by calling it the house of Israel. Uh, so I'm sorry if I confused you. That was probably on me on that one, Clay. Yeah. Did I? Is that? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah I must have just. No, no, no. Sometimes the phrase "house of Israel" is used earlier, which often that's going to refer to the twelve tribes. There are a few times where the house of Israel is used, referring to the twelve tribes again, because. Even though they're two, they're two nations, God still sees them as 12 tribes. 13, actually, but I don't want to go there. But maybe it was Jeff's fault that I said that, so I don't know. Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> anyway, Sure, so I apologize for that. Um, any other questions so far? But so, no, yes. So, so far, just looking at it, it looks like chapter 8 fulfills chapter 7. which is a, a distinct possibility because this was written somewhere in the neighborhood of 780, 760, maybe 740 B.C. So this is written, so for 700 years, they may not have seen this as messianic. They may have, which I, I, and I haven't been able to dig up any rabbinical writing that refers to this as messianic, but I, I, have, a, I have a hint that, or a, a hunch that it's got to be in there somewhere. Perhaps in some of the writings between uh, Malachi, which was written about 400 B.C. and the beginning of the New Testament era. Which, by the way, have you ever heard people refer to that as the silent, 400 silent years? To me, that's just really a bad description of that time. Because are we getting Bible t- written today? So the last Bible, the last chap- or book in the Bible 
in the New Testament, I think, was written about mid-90s. So are we in, are we in a, almost a 2,000-year silent? No, we're not. They weren't in a 400-year silent period of time at all. There was a lot of writing. They, it just was not considered inspired scripture, although it was, a lot of it was very useful to read if you're interested in that time period. So, because it, it, it is when Matthew comes along, actually I should say the angel comes along and talks to Joseph and affirms that this is a messianic prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. So how do we make sense of it? I think I already have, but just trying to tie this up a little bit. How do we make sense of it? There are obviously more than one fulfillment of the prophecy. Does that make sense? Does that make sense to anybody but Clay? <laughs> anybody else but Clay? Uh, sorry. No, I'm kidding. Because, again, Matthew confirms that this is a messianic prophecy. But I think chapter 8 confirms that Malher Shaler Hasbas, which, if you think about his name, okay, quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil, does not, chap, verse 7 through, and verse 8 of chapter 8 really describe that? The Lord brings over them the waters of the river, the Euphrates, strong and mighty. So the river represents the Assyrians and the king of Assyria and all his glory, and he will go up over all his channels. It's, re- it's using the overflowing of the river of the king's influence and his dynasty, not dynasty, but his military overflowing the banks of the river. So that's quick to the plunder. Uh, he will go up over the channels, over the banks. They will pass through Judah and overflow and pass over and reach up to the neck and, and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Whose land? You notice this capitalized, though? And yes, Israel, but more specifically Judah. Okay, but I think it's really referring to, this could be a hint. Remember I told you about the, the, the Hebrew interpretations of Scripture, and one of them is known as the hint, the remits. There's four of them. One is when, when God drops a hint. Over your land, what, over your land, oh God, with us? Yeah, maybe. I mean, oh God, help us, right? Kind of almost as a uh, almost like a prayer of desperation, or it could be over your land. Oh God, with us, which is His name, Emmanuel, and they will call His name Emmanuel. Because what's where where this is a, a problem is that in ver- chapter seven. The name is Emmanuel. In chapter 8, the name is not Emmanuel. But that's not the only time, and I didn't write down the scripture reference, and I can't, I'm not going to pull out of my head 
But that's not the only time that, that we've seen, that we do see in Scripture where there is a prophecy of a name and, then, and the name is given slightly different than, than what was conceived uh, earlier in the early prophecy. Because part of where this is going, and this is, and this is, this is a hard one to deal with, but if I tie it back into Advent even, because the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. But chapter 8 is describing the darkness. And this is very different than the highly optimistic Christian perspective that most evangelicals have today. I'm not saying they're wrong, but I'm also, but I am saying they're not, maybe they're not necessarily right, or they're not necessarily right all the time. The early church understood this. Began about the time of really Nero, 600 AD, or 60s AD, excuse me. And the, the persecution of the church, which really began around the 60s A.D. and continued till the Edict of Milan, which was 315 A.D. 315 to 318, I have to check, but one of the two, where Christianity was no longer outlawed. But during that time span, it wasn't as if persecution of the church was completely widespread and continuous throughout that whole time, or completely widespread throughout the entire Roman Empire. There were flare, little spot fires going on here and there of persecution. But nonetheless, uh, there was a fair amount of persecution, and they, the Romans were brutal. They were brutal to the people they persecuted. I mean, look what they did to Jesus. And... You know, part of why I'm even thinking about this because, and, and I'm not—I don't consider myself a prophet, but I, I would not have foreseen the last couple of years that we've gone through, and particularly the political divide, which is just tragic in this country. Um, and I don't know if things are going to get better. You know, and, and yet, what we see here embedded in the writing is God is dropping the hint when you combine 7 and 8, when you, particularly when you look at verse 7 and verse 8, is that God's behind this. That God's allowing this. Notice the, what we, we didn't read um, Go back to chapter 7 again, 18. And it shall come to pass in that day. Now, when you hear the phrase in that day, you're, especially if some of you are pre-trib, your antenna should shoot up because that is a marker for when God intercedes in the events of human history. Often, the phrase in that day is an end-time reference. This may or may not be. 
or could be both. Is anybody confused? Is anybody with me besides Mary and Clay? No. <laughs> Tiz pointing at Clay. Um, yeah. What, he's not talking about flies and bees here. But he's talking about the armies. And he's whistling them in. He's drawing them in. And they will come and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and the cleft of the rocks and in all the thorns and all the pastures. And the same day the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river, Euphrates, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and will also remove the beard. In that time it was a huge disgrace to have your beard shaved. Right, Tim? Okay. But that was a huge disgrace to have your beard shaved during that time. But God is instigating this. God is raising this up. Um, We're almost out of time. Some of you are probably thinking, good. He's raising this up, though, because he's separating the wheat from the chaff. Because, and I don't have the time to get into this, but I'm going to throw it out here anyway. Sorry. It's about the remnant. Good. Got a look on your face. It's about the remnant. It's about the remnant of those people who are truly his. Uh, See if I can... I didn't write it down. Um, Though Israel be as the sands of the sea. I'm still trying to find it. Only a remnant will be saved. I'll try to, I'm going to pick this up on Sunday, by the way, so I'll have that for you then. Which is also in the book of Isaiah. And Paul quotes it out of Romans. I probably have a better time to use the concordance and go to Romans and find it. But anyway, um, so real quick, there are three different types of messianic prophecies. Okay. There is the direct prophecy. We'll see that in unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's Isaiah 9. A direct prophecy is altogether predictive. And it's fairly clear that it's looking into the future and predicting the coming of Jesus Christ. And incidentally, I think that Isaiah 9, which we're going to look at on the 18th of December, I think that's referring to both comings, not just one coming. Um, So these direct messianic prophecies where the prophet in the Old Testament looks for the New Testament times and and he sees the coming of Jesus. He he has his vision granted to him. Again, chapter 9 is a great illustration of that. Um, Some would say that chapter 7 the virgin will give birth and 
to a son, and we will call his name Emmanuel. Some will say that Isaiah 7.14 is a direct prophecy. I think it's different. I think that's more of an indirect prophecy. The only reason, now thank God for Matthew, but the only reason why we understand chapter 7, verse 14 as a prophecy of the Messiah at all is because of what Matthew recorded for us, right? How else would we know? Maybe direct revelation by the Spirit. That is possible. Yes, which is a, a real, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a giveaway, but, but you can also, uh, it can also be an, almost a, 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 a form of a lament, excuse me, a lament type of prayer, like, oh, God, with us, you know. Um, so you have direct prophecies, then you have the indirect prophecies. Now, Without taking the time to get into this, uh, Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, is, is a bit of an indirect prophecy of the, of the Messiah. But I had to read the whole psalm several times to kind of get the flavor of what it was really talking about. Because it's indirect, which means it's kind of veiled. Um, I have a reference here in my notes. I'm going to look it up real fast. and I can't remember why I stuck it there. Hopefully it's something important. Some view Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10 as an indirect prophecy. It says, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Um, the heavens are the work of your hands, God is spirit. So what's exactly going on here? You know, um, indirect prophecies do not fill in all the pieces. Does that make sense? Does it make sense that it doesn't completely make sense? That's almost what I said, right? Uh, and then there's known as the typical or the typical. You've heard of types in the Bible, Correct. You guys, I think most of you are aware of this, where it, it will give you, it will talk about something as an illustration of something else. Now, you've got to be careful with types because you can turn almost anything into a type and make it say whatever you want it to say. For example, some people say that Noah is a type of Israel having gone through the flood. So... Israel will go through the tribulation. Noah goes through the flood, which is 40 days, not seven years. But uh, we won't worry about that. And that, gosh, his name just went in and out of my brain. Um, it's in the first genealogy in the book of Genesis where it's before Methuselah. Um, Enoch. Enoch walked with God, but then was not for God took him. It's the belief that God actually brought him into heaven, translated him, if you will. And so many will say that Enoch is a type of the church that will not go through the tribulation. Maybe. All right, I'm not convinced. Again, so you have to be careful of what's called typical, uh, spelled typical, uh, messianic prophecies because they are types by means of illustrations. 
Mahershaler Hasbaz, I actually said it correctly for a change, is a example of a typical prophecy, but not necessarily a messianic prophecy. Although maybe he is, and I'm not quite seeing all that there may be there. In other words, there might be more in this chapter than I've even brought out tonight. Especially if you read Revelation and see a lot of the the uh, the setting for the tribulation is in the Holy Land, is in Israel, it's in Judah. So there could be a whole lot more here than really what meets the eye, but when it was given. 2,700 years ago, there was a whole lot more then that met, met the eye. You're working on something. I can almost see it in your face. <laughs> you got another question? Or am I just seeing something that's not there? Maher Hell or Shazbaz? Hell, I'll just say it for you. Yeah. yeah. Either that or a tribulation prior to is coming. And I would see it more of a, of a tribulation prior to is coming. Because I'm, I see the church is probably going through the tribulation. That makes more sense to me biblically. But that's just me. And, say it for me, Harvey. Your mileage may vary. Oh, boy, you just had to, yeah, okay. Your kilometers, your clicks may vary. How's that? An old scout understands that. Any questions? I went a few minutes over, Tim, but you didn't seem to be upset. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think... I think for, tech, for Christmas, we'll have to chip in and buy you a, a George Strait CD that has all my exes live in Texas. But anyway, um, which is one of my favorite George Strait songs, by the way, for whatever that's worth. Any questions? Did this make sense? Barely. Barely? Oh, it's hard to teach it, but... I mean, yeah, but it, I mean, it's, it's almost like I had to read it and read it and read it and read it and read it for, I mean, for a long period of time and then just take it from memory instead of trying to read it too often notes. But I kind of did both. But um, yet, yeah, to me, that's, this, that's how I interpret Isaiah 7.14. A very near, and sometimes near fulfillments are not near fulfillments, by the way. And there are several of those concerning the city of Israel. Right. Or they're also known as former and latter fulfillments. Which, if you want to get semi-Pentecostal, they kind of correlate with, with the, the early and latter reigns. There, there's something to that, I think. Where, where it's part of the, and, and I'm, I, I, I shouldn't, yeah, 
I'll just leave you with that, because there's, but there is a lot there to really consider. Um, so a very near fulfillment, most of the time near fulfillments are not quite so near, and a latter fulfillment that goes into a time that we have uh, seen with Jesus, but it'll be reinforced to us in chapter 9. It actually is a take from the actual hydrological cycle of the nation of Israel, at least at that time when they had early rains, and it's, it's woven into their agricultural year. Early rains and latter rains. <laughs> but yes, the latter and f- the, yeah, the early and latter rains, R-A-I-N-S, which seems to have a corresponding with how God operates.